Good evening, everyone coming in. Glad you made, glad you could join us this evening. We'll give another few moments here to let people come on in. I'll talk a little bit about the weather right now. My goodness, is it hot for June? Um, West Central Indiana today, we got to 100, 100 degrees. Whew, that's, uh, that's hot for June. Usually we don't get those temps till middle to the end of July. Um, but you know, do what you can and you've built these systems to try to be resilient. So going to put them to the test here. Well, folks, we're in for a treat tonight. We have Adam Daughtry with us this evening from Tennessee. Um, let's get going. Giddy up. Let's go. Adam, how you doing? Doing well. Appreciate y'all having me on tonight. Well, we are honored to have you with us this evening. Thank you. I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody, Adam. What uh, What's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? Uh, right now, I'm thinking about my family. They're off. The wife and the kids are off in Florida at the beach, supposed to be returning tomorrow. So we'll be glad to get them back home. And uh, just the temperature, man, we're, we are hot and dry right now with no relief in sight. Got that going on from a work standpoint. And then... Let's see, had a motor go down Monday, so we get to get to work on that. And uh, when I finish up with you here in a little while, I've got a soil conservation district board meeting to well, attend. So that'll that'll wrap up my night probably tonight with a board meeting. Well, thank you for joining with us. We greatly appreciate it. Let's, uh, Adam. Let's go back. Let's go back a little bit in time with your 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 government position there. Your DC and coffee county um how long have you been working for usda let's see august august will be 20 years that i've been with nrcs i started i started here in coffee county in august of 2002 as a soil conservationist uh i just hadn't been out of grad school long hired on with the agency and i worked down here uh for about three years uh left Coffee County and went to the county south, uh, Franklin County, Tennessee, served as the district conservationist there for about four years and then went into NRCS management, uh, was the area resource conservationist, uh, I don't know, five or six years up until about 2012. And in 2012, got introduced by chance to soil health a little bit and uh, it just made a lot of sense. and. Uh, told the state con that we had at that time that if I said, I, th I think I've, you know, I was thinking I was going to be NRCS, just go right on up the the ladder and, uh, you know, state office, probably, right. you know, in goal, be a state conservationist. And then uh, got introduced to soil health. And that's when I made the decision that I think this is what I want to do for a career. I just, I'd been reviewing a lot of farms you know across the whole area i mean we were spending a lot of money uh making some things look nice but i just didn't really know how much change we were having on the farm you no. know i just didn't really you know see a whole lot of difference in management and uh got studying soil health and uh told, told boss man said look when a county opens up it's a it's a good ag county i want to go see if i if this you know basically is, it, is this stuff for real yeah. And uh, lo and behold, the district conservationist I started with about in December of 2012 announced his retirement. And I was able to get back here to Coffee County about 
about May of 2013. Uh, had lived here in the county the whole time that that I'd worked for NRCS, just commuted from here. So already had a lot of contacts. Uh, and uh, we got back, I got back in 2013 and we just hit the ground running. And uh, and it's it's been a pretty good ride, been a pretty good ride. Well, let's talk about the soil health. What, what do you mean? You read a book, you talked to somebody, you, you were at a conference. What, what got the bug started? Uh, the bug got started, uh, we, it was when uh, Ray Archuleta was working for NRCS at the East National Tech Center. And he was making a, I call it going across having his crusade back in the day. And they made a stop in Tennessee and our state con had some of us want us to go listen to him. And uh, that's when I, it just kind of, you know, I'll be honest, when I first got to hearing him, I was like, ah, I don't know about the Ray here. He may have smoked too much cover crop. And, uh, but the more he talked, the more it just, you know, light bulb here, light bulb there. And then from that got to, you know, studying, watching everything I could, you know, that Ray had done at the time, uh, Jay Fuhrer was very active in this. Uh, Gabe Brown, Dave Brandt, those were all people that I started watching, listening to, calling, aggravating them. Uh, John Sticka, you know, some of the NRCS folks, David Lamb. And just basically, while that time that I was still a resource conservationist, I was trying to use that time just to learn enough to be dangerous because I had a plan that I wanted to get back to the field. And uh, and I was already starting to talk to producers uh, while I was in that position, orchestrating some uh, field days, you know, large scale. I didn't know nothing about soil health at the time. I just thought that there was something there and uh, try to surround myself with the right people. And then, you know, from that, that was the fun stuff. Then read, you know, read everything I could get my hands on, went back and reviewed some of the stuff I'd had in college and grad school, it, it, you know, looking at it from a different aspect and read a lot of peer reviewed stuff. I mean, it was brutally painful to read it, but I thought it was important to try to gain that knowledge. Yeah. So was that a, Adam, was that a, um, how do I want to say this? Was that, was there any kind of conflict there within within the agency because you were starting to veer off the the path, right? Yeah, uh, no, re really. At that time, uh, we 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 had a state conservationist, uh, which he he since retired, but his name was Kevin Brown. And uh, at the time, you know, he had kind of bitten the bug a little bit. That's why he had Ray come to Tennessee. You know, he'd been a long time. Been and, in the uh, conservation business for a long time, and Ray still employed with with yes, yes. Yeah. Ray Ray was prior to his retirement, and uh, Kevin kind of had three priorities for Tennessee within RCS at that time, and they were soil health, soil health, and soil health in that order. Well, that's awesome. So they they was a lot of lot of support from the state level, and of course that just filtered right on down to the field level. And, uh, you know, so we didn't have didn't have a lot of hold back on that. It was new uh, for the agency, both from a technical assistance. You know, we were learn we were learning about soil health and getting it out to producers and talking about it. But it's also new to us from a financial assistance. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of meetings and stuff. How do we set up financial assistance to try to help folks do something that right now we just kind of believe in 
and think it'll work and really right. don't know. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Equip then. See, that's how we got started. Uh, the Equip program in Indiana, I don't know I don't know the rules on all this, Adam, but in Indiana, it's a three-year program. Maybe that's what it is nationwide. I don't know. But it, it did for us exactly what I think they intended for it to do. Get you that, that taste, get your appetite wet, help finance that at the beginning, and then you're on your own. So right. what do you, I mean, you see these, com these contracts come and go every day. But you, for somehow, I don't know what you're doing down there, but you have retained what seventy percent of your county is doing cover crops now. Oh, uh, we're about we're about at we average about sixty percent of our acres that are in cover with about That's crazy. With a, I don't know we, which this year we did you know our covers our biomass just wasn't there because of the winter growing season, but we average having twenty to twenty five thousand acres of of row crops planted in crimp biomass across the county. And the rest of it, you know, just planted green standing and some of it's earlier burned down and that yeah. kind. But I guess to get back a little bit before Rick, when we talk about equip, it, it might be important that I kind of talk about how we set up before we got to the equip program in the county, if you want me to. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, when we got back, I, I started, you know, I had learned just enough to be dangerous and uh, knew that this wasn't gonna be something that myself or just the NRCS office was gonna make successful. So first people I went to with the idea and the vision I had for the county was my local soil conservation district board. Uh, luckily, all those were big supporters of, you know, and the one thing about Coffee County I need to mention is, I mean, we had some of the best no-tillers in the world before we started this. This, you know, the Coffee County, before I came back, it was 99% no-till and yeah. and it still is today, you know. So that, you know, that was just from the folks that was here before me, they've done, done a real good job with right. that. But uh, but I went to the district board with the ideal, educated them first, had to get them on board. And I held off going to the producers. Next, I went to, uh, to the retailers in the area because we had, a, you know, we've got a real strong presence of agronomists and our ag retailers. And these are folks that, that, that these producers have had relationships with for 20 or 30 years. And if, if they're not on board, you know, when I go say to you as a producer out here talking about carbon and bugs and soil health and this kind of stuff, and then you go talk to some agronomist that you've dealt with for 30 years that you really trust and say, Hey, this darty guy was out here on my farm talking about carbon and bugs and bacteria. And he says, I think that boy was a fruitcake. Well, I probably lost you, you know, it's going to be hard. So I went to retail, got them, then went to uh, extension. Those, those folks around here, everybody that had a, had a voice in agriculture, got them all on board best I could. Then I started going to the producers. And I, and I had strategic type meetings where I wanted to go to certain areas of the county, okay, because we're not a big county, but things are different on the south end versus the north end. And so I, and I wanted to group, group producers in like settings, meaning I wanted some of my smaller row crop, you know, three, four, 500 acre guys, I wanted them together. And then I wanted the large ones because I didn't want the small guys sitting there. Well, I could do this if I had this guy's infrastructure and labor force. And then I didn't want the big guy saying, well, if I didn't have the three or 400 acres to worry about, I can manage this. 
So, you know, I've done that, you, you know, spent six months doing nothing but just talking soil health, making, making farm visits. And, and, and then you could see, you could see in their eyes if they had an interest. And then I just followed that up with a, with a farm visit and we got the shovels out and started digging. I was learning, they were learning, was learning together. Then equip comes in. I look at equip just like a hammer or skill saw. It's just a tool. It's a tool that I can use to help build something. If yeah. used properly, we can build something good. If used improperly, it's just a crutch. And, uh, you know, but the one thing that we did do right with the equip program in Tennessee is uh, it required five species minimal mix. So we started off with diversity up front and it was yeah, subsidized. The first year? Yeah, we went from clean no-till to, to five species. Mm. We went to from and that and just basic mixes. Uh, the, the first year, of course, I call it, you know, the first two years was just enhanced no-till. We were following cash crops, uh, no-tilling in cover blends, coming and burning them down at a low carbon nitrogen ratio. We didn't have much stuff get get above our needs the first couple of years, just enhanced no-till. Uh, planted green, you know, burn it down, everything, you know, as long as the tractor started, everything worked fine. Uh, had no issues seeing good results. Uh, the third year, we got caught with our britches down, uh, started raining, couldn't get the sprayers in the field, and it warmed up. The next thing you know, we had to learn how to manage biomass. Sure. And we and we done it from, you know, of course, didn't know, do we row, run road cleaners, not road cleaners, what closing wheels. We didn't have no crimpers. I mean, we, we was bringing the color packers out of the fence rows, getting light poles, you name it, whatever we could do to get this stuff down. Cause we had a lot of vetch in it and the vetch had got right. And uh, so we had to get it on the ground. Best thing that ever happened to us. Oh yeah. Best thing that ever happened to us because we had to get over our fear and we got over our fear and those, and those fields flat out whooped the no-till tail that year. Turned off a little hot and dry and it just shined. Yeah, that's kind of our story there too, Adam. I mean, Mother Nature has just pushed and guided us exactly where she wanted us to go. She showed us that don't be afraid. You can do this when it looks like a jungle, but just stay with it. So we, you know, we use the equip. That was our primary tool starting off. We've got different, different cost share programs. That's one thing we don't discriminate on dead presidents. It all spends the same. Right. And uh, had some real good partnerships when we found the need. Tennessee Department of Agriculture has has the ability for us to request grant money to get equipment in, innovative equipment. So the next year we had a couple of crop rollers in the county for rent for the producers. Uh, you know, so it and that's helped. We've we wore that we wore a couple of INJs out. Oh yeah. Well, let's go back to your 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 legendary no-tillers. Did they did they understand that? that how important the cover, I mean, no-tilling is very important and cover cropping is very important. Do they understand now that the two together are the absolute, that's the the, the, the summit you're trying to get to? They do uh, because the one thing that became real apparent to us uh, and it was kind of one of my sales pitch to them that no-till in our area looks really good on the surface, okay? We've got erosion under control. However, it, it is functioning at a low level. That's fine if that's all the potential it had to function. But in our climate right here, 
our soils have the potential to function just exponentially. Yeah. Luckily, the first thing that happens when you start applying the four principle, the main four principles in row cropping is you start, you return the water to the ground. And, you know, it was, you know, all of our no-till fields would infiltrate water at right, right at two inches per hour. Conventional fields, less than an inch. And our enhanced no-till no those first two years got us up in the four, six inch range. Then they, then when we started crimping biomass, that's when it, you know, we started seeing these eight, 10, 12, 20 inch per hour infiltration rates. Yeah. And uh, so they, they started understanding, uh, you know, and I started understanding more uh, about it. And, uh, but they, they were always open to, to hearing about this. They, they understand, they understood no-till, but a lot of the issues we had with no-till where we had herbicide resistant weeds starting to creep in and become a problem where we wasn't able to handle the drought situations, where we wasn't right. getting the efficiency off the inorganics that was applying on. Once that once that we learned and started understanding how that's all biologically driven and it and if and we got this tremendous potential between harvest to the next April that we can yeah. capture sunlight. And instead of just feeding this population, cutting the buffet off and letting it die out, then, you know, then we've got this potential. And, and one of my biggest, one of the biggest selling points that I had was our winter weeds. You know, we're far enough south that we get a pretty good flush of winter weeds. They're not as efficient as these cocktail blends that we plant, but a weed, well, you know, hen bit chickweed, Buttercup, they still photosynthesize more than dead residue. Yeah. And, we'll, you know, when you talk to these farmers, it's paid attention, you know, when, when they've got a good hen bit crop, they know they're fixing to have a good corn crop. Yeah. Then, you know, all we're doing is enhancing that. So I tried to, Free. you know, yeah, I just tried to put some of the stuff that made sense and then how we can keep working with, you know, because that's nature trying to tell us what we're doing wrong. And then if we start working with their enhancer, I mean, the sky's the limit for us down here. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've always, also with the, the, the no-tillers, I've always thought about stratification and the, the, the cover crops just pretty much eliminate that. Assuming you can go down through everything, they pretty much yeah. eliminate all that. They kind of bring everything back into balance again, recycle these nutrients. Um, I just, you know, it's just incredible how quickly you can create change if you're just willing to try something. Um, you know, as soon as you start, as soon as you start pumping, soon, as soon as you start feeding the system with energy, I, yeah. I don't think in, I don't think in cycles anymore. Cycles are meant to be broken. I yeah. think in flows of energy, whether we're talking carbon, nutrients, whatever. Once we have a continuous flow of energy and feeding the system, things are going to start working. We're never going to understand it all. And it's always going to throw us curveballs. But, you know, and it's just, you know, when, when, I, when I first started, I could stand in a field that had been no-tilled for 30 years, had, it, had everything known to man thrown to it from amendments to whatever to loosen that soil up, you know, run this tillage, run that tillage. And I could walk 20 yards into a native woodlot that what that field started as the reason why it's still in woods is because inherently it wasn't as good a soil. So they didn't clear it. And infiltration rate is exponentially higher. 
Yeah. The soil structure is exponentially higher. There's no pigweeds in it, you know. So I ask them, you know, what what did you do different in these woods to make the water infiltrate versus in the field? Well, you know, and just kind of had a heart to heart come to Jesus meeting. Like, how well has that really worked for us? Yeah. You you spent thirty years running equipment over this, and we're at two inches, and it started at eighty inches per hour. So that just opens our eyes and lets us know nature's got this figured out. We just got to work with it. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I like, too, what I'm hearing here, Adam, is you're keeping this simple. I mean, you know, I, well, I suppose we'll talk about carbon here sometime in this, in this, in this conversation we're going to have. But, you know, everybody wants to make this so difficult. You can go out here and, and quickly assess a, 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 an acre of ground pretty quick, 30, 45 minutes with a few little soil tests tests that you do that's all we have to do you know uh, a hammer a round ring a, a spade and two cylinder tubes that that are full of water you know so and, and that and that just and really that just gives you some numbers to put to what we already know if we go out there and we know there's not something growing on that field as many days as possible we know it's in a state of degradation to yeah. what potential it could have yeah that's a good way to look at it because, you know, I don't, I'm not scientific. I didn't, I'm not a biologist, I don't, but I do know that we're trying to maximize the amount of sugar that goes into the ground and the amount of oxygen that goes in the ground. That's all I need to know. You know, Dr. Jones and, and Chris Nichols, they can tell us the, what all the microbes are called. That's great. But you're, you're nailing it on the head here. We have to maximize photosynthesis. And to do that, you've got to have cover crops and you've got to not kill them on the first warm day of spring and let them grow. Yeah, so, because, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, go right ahead. You know, because, you know, you know, which I, I've, I've taught a lot of courses to other NRCSers and everybody's got their own, uh, you know, principles or whatever, but a principle, we, we talk about keeping the soil covered well, that, that's the principle, that's the result, but what does that really affect? And until you, if, if you're not dissipating the energy of a raindrop, there is no way for you to have a functioning soul the way it's designed to. And I'm talking, you know, we used to evaluate fields, right? We'd evaluate a field. Well, now I evaluate, you know, I look at little pieces in that field because you can go right there where you've got a piece of bare soil and you can move two inches where you've got covered and got root mass, there is two completely different ecosystems going on. Yeah. Both visually with the indicators, but you can take samples and send that off. And they are daylight and dark difference in the amount of biology you have. So also we're gonna have different functions right there. You know, we spend millions of dollars on precision application equipment to put down this stuff. Well, if I'm going to invest in this equipment and I'm going to have precision ag, which I'm a big precision ag guy, I love in furrow. I love putting stuff where I need to. I, I'm an equipment junkie, but I need to get the most homogenous field out there I can for my guys to be able to capture the benefits of what they're doing. Because I can be because if I'm not putting it all in the same, if I'm putting some stuff on apples and stuff stuff on oranges, I can't expect to get right. the same results. Yeah, and that's true. So tell us, do you tell us about your weather? Do you get cold enough to freeze there? Our soil does not really get cold enough that we get deep frost freeze. I mean, our uh, we bury pipeline 18 inches. 
and that oh, gets wow. below that gets below the frost line. We will get cold enough that that you know we'll get a crusted froze layer, but our our biology it never really gets cold enough that our biology goes dormant. You know that's why we can't build these great big high organic matter numbers. You know it's why I tell folks I'm not concerned with organic matter. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, I'd like to have plenty of it. I'm more concerned with how much feed and energy I've got in the house. Yeah. So I'd rather be in a little two bedroom with granny cooking three squares a day as I would in a, in a mansion sitting in a fold out chair eating a can of beanie weenies. <laughs> it, you know, I, li- I, you know, I'd like to have the big mansion and granny cooking three squares with the whole house running full of generations of kids, but we just, our biology and that's, and that's one reason why our no-till would get so tight and get so deaggregated because our your biology is going to take a little hiatus during the winter time. Mine's still sitting there with its boots propped under the table, ready to eat. Yeah. And and uh, you know, in these in these silt long clay soils we've got down here, all the aggregates that we that we produce during that that cash crop, all that carbon flow, you know, man, you know, we just we consumed and deaggregated our soil. But your your system is in in hyperdrive. Yeah, and that and that's why and that's why if it was if it wasn't for winter weeds, no till wouldn't have been as successful in this region as it had. That leaked just enough carbon to make it where where folks didn't rely on the tillage tools. Yeah, isn't that something though? But you didn't know that at the time. Oh no, I mean no, I mean I remember when I left when I left the field, it was a strategy we were doing fall burndowns trying to keep get the fields good and clean for spring. Yeah. Well, that hurts when you think back about it. Yeah, it does. So what about um, uh, water hemp, Palmer Amaranth? You have those lovely weeds? Don't have any, don't have any water hemp. Uh, we're pretty close to the birthplace of Palmer. Uh, we got, we got glyphosate resistant Palmer, got glyphosate resistant mare's tail. Yeah. Uh, Palmer, Palmer for us, uh, in, in even in good cover systems, we in beans we 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 rely on a one post residual her application to control Palmer in some of our areas. Uh, mare's tail can be controlled in two or three years with covers. Yeah. We, we we've had now we've got another little issue going up. We're getting some resistant uh, ryegrass, and that that's going to be an issue. Yeah, so, but uh, but yeah, we we've got we've got all the big weeds besides the water hemp. Uh, and uh just uh you know morning glories uh horse nut you name it we've got it we've got it with stickers on it we've got it with you know sure. we've got the weeds and well you've uh, got an environment there that's going to promote that too we do and there's you know there's things there's certain things that that drive weeds uh one is disturbance uh that's one of the main things you know but you know what i've noticed uh and really started paying attention to this in the last couple of years. And I guess I picked this up on my own farm. I, we, we always say that our weeds, especially our pigweed are in response to, uh, you know, disturbance, bare ground, whatever. But I really think they're in more of a, a, a response to our imbalances in fertility, especially nitrates. Uh, most of the weeds that we see are some of the first responders for nitrates. Well, when you've got bare ground, when you don't have that biology there, you're going to have imbalances in nitrates, both organics and inorganics. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but we've got them. Uh, 
the covers have allowed us to be able to manage these weeds uh, where our beans used to be. You know, we were looking at three passes on a sprayer after emergence. We've got that cut down to one and corn, uh, you know, one. And a lot of folks right now, you know, every year it's just more and more folks, uh, you know, not not doing a post after after corn when we got the biomass. We're going to spray more this year just because we didn't have the biomass with cold and wet this winter. So we'll we'll have a lot more, lot more corn getting sprayed. Yeah. Now, uh, Adam, do you know do you know much about uh, grazing? Do you have animals in your county? Yes. Okay. Yes. We got a question here from Matt Lorenz. Okay. I am a I am a no-till diverse mixed cover crop corn soybean rotation in extreme southern Indiana. This is our first year of conventional with no seed treatment on the corn. Congratulations. I cannot use a post herbicide. I, I don't know why. I, I'm, I don't know if he's organic, but anyway, I cannot use a post herbicide. I want to incorporate cattle or sheep for soil health, but I am hung up on losing weed suppressing residue throughout the grazing period. How might I add animals to my mix? That's a great question. Well, how, do you folks, how do you folks deal with that? Uh, well, and if he's in southern Indiana, he's his latitude's enough that I think that he can he can be pretty close to uh, adapting some of the things we're doing. Number one, number one thing in uh, grazing livestock is uh, we we got to be you got to be uh, cognizant about getting your cover sown timely and correctly. Don't be planning on blowing it out of an airplane expecting covers uh we're not we know we're not a graze if we're going to graze covers hard we're increasing in our mixes up to uh, you know 150 pounds additional cereals okay where we're coming in and grazing just our mixes uh what we're doing with those is we're we're, we're grazing them lightly usually with light stalker cattle uh we i've not got anybody that's really got into the mob grazing uh, where we're really, where we're using the cattle to mob the covers. But what we do, our climate will allow, allow us to come in usually first part of February uh, and start grazing these covers. And then what, ideally what, what's got to be done is you've got to wait. You've got to get the, the cattle pulled off in time and then wait to let those covers regrow because we, we can grow more biomass between April 1st and May 1 than sure. we can between September 1st to April 1. So we can graze those cattle to mid to late March, give it a month to, to heal. Now, are we gonna have 12, 14,000 pounds of biomass that we would if we didn't, but we still will have, you know, eight, six, seven, 8,000 pounds of biomass. And if you let it grow enough, you've got enough there that you can suppress, you can get, you can get enough to keep your field covered. Now, Adam, can you get that scenario you just described? Can you get can you get that to a stage to roll? Then, will that will that? I mean, I know it depends on the species you planted, but can you roll it to and terminate it, or just yeah. roll it to get it down? Either way, either way. Uh, yeah, we can get it to a stage that we can crimp it and temp chemically terminate it, no problem. Uh, if we were going to do that and try to terminate with a crimper with no chemicals, yes, we could get, we could get our, we could get, uh, we'd have to be cognizant of our species. Uh, we need to right. be probably, probably pretty much just uh cereal rye or barley 
in that or triticale as our cereals in that mix. Uh, by May 1, probably not crimping and terminating. We're probably going to be looking at May 15th to May 20th on a, on a normal year that we would be 10, 10 days past pollen shed where I'd be pretty comfortable that we could terminate that with a crimp. And I don't, I don't think that's too late to be planting soybeans, for example. So not, not in Southern Indiana, it's not, um, you know, uh, we're probably that's, that's pushing the envelope on our early group mature, maturing beans. We want to get those in the ground a little bit earlier and just capitalize on as much photosynthesis as we can. You know, so we're we're typically anymore now we're planting soybeans before we are corn. Yeah. That's, uh, so are you planting group fives? Is that what you do there? Uh, we're we're from a two eight to a four four on our early oh, really? beans, and uh, and then our late bean, you know, our double crop beans will be a late four to a late five. Right, right. So Matt, I hope that I hope that helps. That was a very good answer. I hope that helps. Um, so Adam, if if you're planting a a three five soybean on what April twentieth probably right yeah yeah so when's harvest for you then the last week in August uh, well those beans a mid three with regular and growing conditions we'll we'll be real serious by Labor Day those will be ready those will be ready to start cutting a two so that- a two Two eight. I've I've seen some two eights cut the last week of August. Yeah. And uh, you know, and it, it it just it just depends on the beans. But uh, but yeah, our early beans uh, we we can be pretty serious about first of September on some of those starting to run through them. It's just now the one thing about uh about these covers and these beans once you get these soils uh you get these soils cranking and uh, the growing conditions are really good. These beans, man, they like to keep growing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we'll we'll have we'll have dried out, you know, we'll have dried out pods, and we'll still have green green vines at times. You know, they just when when things like their conditions, they really like to grow. Yeah, yeah. So then I'm assuming then the the drills right behind the combine, and we're 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 pounding away at some at a cover crop mix to get you through what whatever you would call winter, yeah. and then ready for next spring. Yeah, and especially, you know, starting off, you know, we started everything off. We were drilling uh, behind the combines, and, you know, that's when folks were starting out with smaller acreages that they can manage. But now when folks are getting their whole operation in, it's a logistical nightmare to uh, harvest a crop and plant a crop at the same time. So we still run drills, but we've got – well, we run run a lot of – like crumblers, like the universe, universe, uh, rolling baskets with air seeders. Uh, we, we still put a, uh, you know, we still put some stuff on with planes. Uh, if the weather gets right, if we get it early enough, we've been pretty successful with that. I mean, that's my least preferred way, but I try to work with everybody. You know, yeah. I know it, it's just hard to get it all on. Now, if I'm, if I'm going, if I'm really counting, you know, if, if I'm counting on getting away from chemistry and really ensuring, you know, that I've got a cover crop to manage next year, if I'm trying to go towards organic or go, you know, go away from as much chemistry as I can, yeah, you're going to have to 
especially the further north you go, uh, you're going to have to be real serious about getting these covers established. Yeah. And that's that's going to be with a drill in most cases. So now, now Adam, I'm West Central Indiana, so I'm several miles north of you, several. Um, I can I can go around the farm and show you planting dates of, of cover crops in the fall, and we can see it in the spring the next year. I mean, it's it's huge. A week is a huge difference for our biomass. Yep. Do you have that same issue there? I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like, you know, if, okay, if we don't quite get it by September the 15th and we do it October the 1st, we're probably going to be okay, right? Yeah, we, we've we we've had successful stands uh, drilling cover crops the same week that Santa Claus is business and, uh, and, and, and still have good stands. Now, I like the early stands because we've done tests. The, when we've got these late planted stands and we don't have a lot of green folk, when we don't have a big solar panel out there, we're missing a big opportunity uh, to feed biology and put a lot, put a lot of sugar in the ground during right. our mild fall going in. But now as far as just being able to get biomass to manage and, and utilize for weed suppression and keeping the soil covered, anything we get a stand on, if you, if you let it go to May 1, you're, you're going to have at least eight to 10,000 pounds biomass. Yeah. Yeah. Now some of those earlier planted stands, you know, we can get up there in 14, 15,000 pounds. Uh, we've kind of reduced our overall biomass amount over the last two or three years because we've eliminated cereal rye and most of our mixes were further enough South that we don't have to have cereal rye. And it, and it wasn't the, the, the tallness at times when we were still on a lot of dry systems made it where we had to get it down before we could before we could run the spinner trucks and stuff just because they'd mess up the spread pattern. But it's mainly where here and it's the way cereal rye does everywhere, but here it's really exponential. Cereal rye will really lignify quick. Uh, you know, it'll go from a carbon nitrogen radiate ratio of 35 up into the 50s, you know, in like a week and a half. Yeah. So when we were early on in these systems here, which it's great to keep the soil covered uh, and great for all that, but we were immobilizing a lot of nutrients by having to deal with that. We can get, we don't get the height of the biomass where we took it out, but uh, uh, with the barley and the triticale and the oats in the mix, we were kind of a, a more lower dense biomass mm -hmm. and, and folks seem to like that. And it's, and we're not as high of a carbon nitrogen ratio in general. Right. See, I, I don't think a lot of people, you know, I don't know if they pay enough attention to that carbon to nitrogen ratio. Now, now here where we are, you get to a date on the calendar and you've got no choice. It's cereal rye or it's going to mm -hmm. be nothing. So sometimes you can only do so much here. But, yeah. but you know, I guess, I guess what I think about, when I, when I think about folks in your, in your environment is for me to get diversity now, I have to get either A, species that I can mechanically terminate or B, species the winter kill. Well, you don't have that on there. So your, 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 your selection is getting mighty small if, if you wanted to totally eliminate chemistry. And it, you know, and we're, and we're just, you know, I tell a lot of folks, we're just spoiled with our climate down here. You know, I mean, we can grow anything. We, we plant in the fall, we plant flax in our mixes. We get flax, it'll go up. We can get 
we'll get buckwheat if we plant it before October one. We'll get buckwheat to bloom in the yeah, fall. Right. You know, so we diversity is it's so easy for yeah. us here to really pump a lot of diversity. And you know, I don't have anybody whose goals are uh, to go organic no-till. Really, I mean, I've got a couple guys we're kicking around the ideal pretty heavy, you know, but so to me, you know, and I think when we have a lot of diversity, that also increases our buffering capacity for the soils. It helps eliminate some of the screw ups that we're going to make that we don't really understand. Yeah. And, you know, we're still using chemicals and, and, uh, but I think the soil, when you get it pretty healthy and uh, you give it a couple of acute stresses during the year, it can handle it. It, it can handle it and still, and it's got it. It's got to be able to, Rick, because the analytical testing we've done over our three-year study, we just kept rising in all the analytics from PLFAs to Haney tests to our to our indicators with infiltration. You know, could we maybe got even more? Had we eliminated some of the chemistry? But from a standalone no-till to where we got still using chemistry, but starting to work with nature with the covers, yeah. it's a it's a it's a pretty impressive, uh, it's pretty impressive what you'll do when you feed the soil. And, yeah. I, and I think, and I think it'll buffer and I think it'll work with us still allow some of the use of the chemicals and not, and not hurt us so hard. Talk about, let's talk a little bit more about that three year study. That was kind of, that was a big deal. When, when did you, when, what were the three years? It was it all right there in coffee County. T talk a little bit about it. We started that. We ran that 2015 through 2018. Mm -hmm. And let's see, I think I had 18 producers, 18 full producers and myself, and it encompassed about 2,200 acres. And what, what we were, what we were running on those studies is we had, uh, we done, we done just the whole field, the whole field would receive the same cover treatment. Well, you and baselined we, it, right? You started yeah, with, start with, yeah. you know. They all, came, they all came out of long-term no-till into a five-species cover mix. And, and then within that field, we would uh, apply nutrients based off Haney's results, mm -hmm. okay? So I would sample, sample the fields. In each of the fields, we were sending off uh, University of Tennessee soil test analysis. Uh, Dr. Rick Haney was running Haney tests for us. And then Ward's lab was running PLFAs. So we replicated that for three years on those fields, taking samples uh, twice a year. And uh, we were taking them uh, right there around planting time and then there at harvest time. So we had a good idea. You know, we, we tracked PLFAs. We tracked uh, the Haney test. Just in general, uh, Haney test over the three-year doubled uh, as far as the soil health calculation. Our CO2 respiration started below 50 and on average on those fields was hovering around 250. Just on average, we had some outliers, you know, but I mean, we didn't have none of the cover fields that were 60 or 70. Uh, right. PLFAs, which folks not familiar, that's just kind of a measure of the mass of bugs in the soil and nanograms per gram of soil. We started out in the 2000 range and uh, those got to 4,500 to 6,500 on average across, across all the test fields. 
uh, we'll make note that they were some clear outliers in some of our fields because we had some fields that had livestock integrated onto them. Yeah. The fields that had livestock integrated were clear front runner, higher performers than all the standalone cover crop fields. Okay. I'll also make note that, that during this time, we were introduced to Southern Prairie voles. Okay. Because they used to live in the woods and just mess around with the edges. Now we created for, uh, you know, 25,000 acres of new habitat for them with these covers. So we had prairie voles uh, and slugs. Still to this day, fields that we've integrated livestock on, we have had no prairie vole issues and no slug issues. Wow. And that, that's running five years. And that's not, that's not strategic uh, mob grazing livestock. That's opening the gate and letting some cows have some access to a field. Yeah. So, right. you know, their livestock, livestock is a missing link to a lot of our biological controls, you know. So, you know, that, that was just something pretty cool. What, what we'd also saw is on average, when we started out in these fields, uh, they were infiltrating it two to three inches per hour. Uh, by the end of the study, all of them, we're averaging over six to eight inches per hour in infiltration rate. Had some of our fields that had better inherent soil properties. We had fields infiltrating 15 to 20 inches per hour consistently. Uh, that makes a big deal. That makes a big deal as far as yeah. how much water we can conserve. And then, and then we also learn from this, uh, you know, we always talk about how many acres you farm. We need to be looking at it on how much volume of soil we farm. And, uh, and it's not linear. Farming six to eight inches of soil is exponentially greater than farming two inches of soil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I like that. So, Adam, what's your what's your topography? There? I mean, what what's your slope? Uh, three three to five percent. Uh, we our prime crop lands two to four percent rolling rolling hills. Uh, two, we got closed outlet hydric depressions uh we don't farm a lot of real steep stuff uh that's got cattle on it uh which coffee county it's in two set or three sections you've got the elk river valley that's the south part of the county that's deep red uh is good inherent soil as they is in in the southeast north part of the county is the barrens it's real flat uh dixon soil everything it's got three foot till it goes to a restricted fragile pan Got a lot of wetlands, a lot of that kind of stuff. Then you fall off into the Nashville Basin, the hills and hollows, and it's it's limestone outcrop. It's it's not row crop land. There's yeah. some little creek bottoms down there, but uh, we're we're rolling. We're 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 too rolling for, you know, it'll washed away a long time ago with tillage. Oh, but yeah. we're 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 flat enough that no till held held the world together. Uh, but it it. But even with no-till, you know, we we were fixing little washes and stuff all, you know, every year. Uh, oh, yeah. After the after the first year of cover crops, those little washes in your no-till fields they disappear. Somewhere around that four inch per hour infiltration rate in our neck of the wood is when the is when the erosion the little washes stopped. Right. Well, we've got a question from Steve Hoffman. Steve, how are you doing this evening? Thanks for listening. How and. Uh, this could be the one of us, Adam. How do you get rid of Canada thistle that is established in an organic system? First of all, do you have organic or do you have Canada thistle 
pressures in, in Coffee County? No, we don't have any Canada thistle. Yeah, you're lucky. Um, I'll take a shot at this. Steve, well, we do have Canada thistle. I'm seeing it starting to creep in. Um, the longer we go in this system with no chemistry and no tillage, um, one thing we're going to have to try, I'm, I'm going to try first, be 40 or 50 pounds of sorghum sudan and see if we can't smother the thistle out with that uh we're going to probably try and and graze because then if we graze we're able to the, the cattle won't eat them but we're able to get in there and clip with a a mower and maybe we can clip multiple times a year and and slow them down but we may have to resort to some some tillage because i i honestly uh, we cannot let these get out of control because they are a noxious weed and we've got to be cognizant of, of the pressure. But that's what we're going to try to do with that. I don't, I don't know if that's a good enough answer for you. But, yeah, we are starting to get some. I haven't had to deal with it before, so this is kind of new. Um, I will I will add one thing on, on that, uh, Steve, which I'm, I'm – Rick, I'm not familiar with, uh, with the – Canada thistle, but most warm season noxious weeds, the most success I've seen, and, and it take you do have to take something out of production, but when we can go in with summer cocktails mm -hmm. and graze those, that has a big effect because most of those weeds, like I said earlier, the thistle as well, it's looking for imbalances in 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 in, in fertility, and when we can come in with an early planted, I, I'm assuming the it's a warm season growing weed mainly. Yes. You know, yes. so if, if you know, it's a tap root, deep tap root, you know, and uh, probably, and it's probably a responder to uh, nitrates, I would say. So I would look at a cocktail summer blend, probably heavy in the grass thing that, that you can utilize and try to capture some imbalances in those nitrates would be, would probably be my first start. I know, I know it works wonders on Palmer pigweed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. I, I don't think it just has to be specific to a, a particular weed, but what type, what family is it in or what, what, what environment does it like to live in? Yeah. Cause we had, a, I had a producer, he's actually the chairman of my board and uh, he, he does a lot of direct uh, selling at farmer's markets and stuff like that. And they row crop as well, but a, a doctor wanted him to take over his operation. And uh, I went and, it was so late in the season, the person that had farmed it previously was not going to farm it. So they went and planted a summer, summer mix across all acres. And there was one field that it bordered that had, uh, that had a wheat hay crop cut off of it and had double crop beans planted. And it was probably the worst infestation of Palmer that I've ever seen in those beans. And right next to it, and I'm not talking a fence row, I'm talking you know the line was just mm -hmm. right there in the field that summer mix was planted and they they was not a palmer pigweed in the whole mix and and the same guy had farmed the whole field forever you know he had farmed it all together he and uh so that really opened my eyes to balances in and our fertility and how and yeah. you know because that's all i mean well, we got one thing we got to understand the soil, it never wants to grow a monoculture of corn. It never wants to grow a monoculture of soybeans. It don't care. All it wants to do is reach an equilibrium with its carbon to nitrogen ratio and its nutrients. It's all it wants to do. 
we're always as as human beings and producers going to be asking the soil to provide and do more than really it's naturally capable of yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. and i think sometimes and when we'll just think about that you know i guess just always try to say put ourselves in the soil shoes what's the soil trying to tell us sometimes that'll help us fix some of our issues yeah that you you've got a you've got a very good handle on this adam um this has been a great conversation. Um, what do you, Adam? What do you What do you suggest for a beginner out there that's listening? That that you know they're starting to read a lot of more about this. It's getting into the mainstream. You get a lot of success stories out there. So man, you know we got to go. Let's get Let's get on board. What What, what are you suggesting? Because you've seen it all. You You've gone from from. Uh, you know, worldly known no-tillers that are now full-blown cover croppers. So what, what do you, how do you get a person started? Uh, number one, realize we've spent a lot of years degrading this resource, okay? This is an investment that's going to take time, okay? Number two, don't go in, num number two, start understanding ecological functions. Know, know why you're doing something before the how the how part's easy we got to know why we're doing it you know why is our resource degraded why do we have the issues that we have so start understanding your why number three don't go into this looking to reduce yeah right off the bat right off the bat uh you know i always said you can't starve a profit out of a gar hole okay don't look at it from a right off the bat looking at reductions more than more than likely you're going to have increase in inputs uh right off the bat number four as soon as you can and i don't think this matters if you're starting from tillage or if you're starting from no-till everywhere you can start reducing salt loads there's a lot of products out there that we can utilize that will help this soil perform to the capacity we're wanting it to yeah that are a lot that are less salt laden and, and it's a pretty good security blanket where you can get some inorganics to help you in this without as much salt. Uh, next thing is start with enough that it matters. Don't start with three acres because if it fails, it ain't going to hurt you. Not saying to put your whole operation in, but you got to start with enough that you're going to pay attention that, yeah. that you've got to make this work if you want the ultimate goal in farming and that's to be able to farm next year yeah feel a little pain yeah start with that uh do not be afraid of diversity use as much diversity early on as you can that your geographical region will allow then uh then you got to start making the decisions on how far do you want to take this? Do you, do you want to be as high yielding, uh, uh, get as much utilization out of all the inputs you use through biology, or do you want to make the other shift and start and start looking at a different net net profit per acre type model? And if, do you want to be start starting to reduce, uh, you know, I, the one thing I try to stress is there is no eliminations in agriculture. There's only substitutions. Okay. We cannot eliminate fertility. Okay. We got to say, Mr. Rick, you can't eliminate fertility. You can't grow, go grow 
150, 200 bushel corn with no fertility. It's got to be substituted from something else. Mm -hmm. A combination of sunshine, tapping into that organic pool. We cannot eliminate herbicides or pesticides. If we, you know, we've got to bring in the beneficials to be able to eliminate some of the other things. So that's one thing. Think about replacements from a biological standpoint and not and not eliminations. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the list can go on and on and on, but it's, but if you'll notice, I'm not talked a lot about how to do something. It's uh, more just thinking about and understanding because the how part, man, we all know how to run drills, run planters, calibrate. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that's the easy part. That's the fun part you're going to enjoy. And, uh, but, but make sure that you, you know where you want to go and you'll, you'll be able to get there a lot better. Uh, that's one thing. And, uh, another thing is do not hesitate to reach out to people. I, there, there's one thing about this community. Uh, I've not met anybody that's, that's not been very given and, you know, and it'd have been hard for me to get a start if it hadn't been for some, uh, for some producers that took an interest in this, this old government boy and thought that thought that he was interested in something. Yeah. The, the community is, is very, very reasonable and very flexible to help. And that is for sure. It, it's a great thing to have this camaraderie and, and the community. So, and those are that, I hope people were paying attention because he gave about 10 great reasons on why to start, start to do these regenerative type practices. So, wow. It was awesome. All right, Adam, we got Ashley Farr. Uh, we are located in central Vermont. It's a little bit out of either, both of our legs here. That's all right. We take soybeans off in mid-November and are looking for something to put in for a cover crop. It's most likely not going to grow until the following spring. We'll generally be going to corn. Could go to a spring grain. Any suggestions? Well, I, I know what I'm going to say. Go ahead. Uh you're, you're going to be limited on post-harvest uh, establishment of covers in, in your latitude. Cyril Rye is the only one I'm familiar with that would have a fighting chance. Uh, I would start looking at researching, relaying intercropping, I think is the way, the way in a soybean, corn, whatever, whatever type of space row stuff you're growing to really be able to maximize and get the benefits, I think you're gonna have to start looking at relay companion uh, intercropping to be able to get some of these cold tolerant cereals uh, planted early enough that they'll survive your all's winter. That's that's me shooting from the hip when I've never been to Vermont, uh, but I'm now the other situation is, is you've got, you can be, you can do a tremendous amount of changing or improving your soil health by changing your rotation and looking at maybe taking out one of your summer cash crops and priming it with summer cover crop cocktail blends and utilizing the livestock. Right. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to venture to say that in Vermont, there's some dairies close by. So that's an excellent point. Uh, maximize your time of the year to change different crops have a cereal come on that is harvested in July. Now you've got time not to double crop soybeans, but pound in a, a cocktail that gets you ready for next year. That's one way. 
then I would suggest, I mean, we're playing around with these cold tolerant peas and I really like the notion of these peas. And, and, and if, I don't know if you've got time though, in in November, you probably don't have time for triticale. It's probably too late, but, but cold tolerant peas with a wheat or cold tolerant peas with even a cereal rye uh, would be something you might want to look for for, for having that fuel for corn the, the following spring. Um, I hope that helps, Ashley. Um, but, but Vermont, that's kind of tough. It's getting north, but I do like Adam's suggestion of relay. Uh, Google that, search that. Uh, that's something we've been doing. We're not quite doing it the way the traditional relay folks are doing, where they're doing like two rows of a rye and then skip two and then two rows of rye and they come back in spring and put the beans in that skip. We're kind of doing the rye across the whole spectrum on seven and a half inch, and then coming back in the spring and planting beans into that, and then harvest the two together. So, yeah, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Um, what else was I gonna? I wanted to ask you something else here. Um, so let's go back to Coffee County, and you talked about five species is where you got the folks started okay with either a the equip program or b this just getting out of straight no-till and we got to incorporate okay so now as you're learning about biology you're learning about all this so what are you sitting what are you building now what do your cocktails look like are they are they 12 species 14 species do you care about that is it more of a carbon to nitrogen ratio i mean what are you focusing in on uh focusing in on diversity uh, right now across the board mo anything that i'm doing with cost share uh is requiring a 10 species mix oh wow so and that's now no wait a minute that's that's uh federal or is that that's that's the county that's county that's federal that's federal so what, what we've done is uh we had folks you know equip usually runs on a three-year deal that was and this this gets into looking at some equip rules and addressing resource concerns. You can reapply equip if you go above and beyond the resource concerns that have already been addressed oh. and address additional resource concerns. So what we've done here and and well, we've done a lot of it in, in Coffee County, which it was available throughout the whole state. Some of the guys that had already had an equip contract, some of those folks we're able to reapply for equip with a condition that you've done at least 10 species. And then on top of that, uh, you had to 25% of your mature woodline borders had to have annually planted pollinators. Mm. Okay, so this was kind of where I was on a kick looking at knocking out some of the neonicotoid seed treatments. I wanted to build this habitat uh, to bring in more and more beneficial insects and pollinators. Right. So got to looking at the economics of it. Most of our mature woodline, we're losing about $200 a year per acre to basically set back succession by planting a corn crop there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we were able to come in. It was a 15 foot minimum. Most of the folks have went out 30 foot on these mature woodlines. So we'll come in and plant an annual so and i wanted to do it annually i didn't want the perennials because the reason why we're wasted losing 200 dollars a year is to is to keep the forest from growing out in our fields because we let something set set idle 
for a year, year and a half, we've got woodies coming into it. Yeah. We've got trees growing. Yeah. So I knew I couldn't sell folks like a CRP perennial type deal. Uh, one, it'd be too hard to manage. And, and two, they know that it ended up turning into a thicket. So, yeah. so let's just take this field. Let's say it's got a wood line on two edges. Uh, we'd come in after harvest or whenever we sow the whole thing down to cover crops. Okay. The whole field gets the regular cool season blend. Then we come back in in the spring and we take those edges and we plant those annual planted, you know, sunflower, buckwheat, uh, you know, just a bunch of stuff that will grow in the summer. It's got a lot of flowers, a lot of different colors, track different things. And then we'd plant, plant our cash crop. Well, that allowed some folks to get some additional three years going above and beyond on cost share. Okay. From that, now everybody's just kind of, you know, most, most folks are wanting to do, you know, now if I get a, a, a new person that's just now getting started, we'll still start with a five, six type species mix. But in general, just blanket coverage on most of our fields, uh, which we've eliminated cereal rye pretty much. I don't have many producers that use much cereal rye, but it'll be a mixture of barley, triticale, bob oats, black oats, Austrian winter pea, hairy vetch, crimson clover, balanza clover, yellow field pea, daikon radish, flax. Yeah. Seems like I'm forgetting one. But that's that's the general mix. Three or four cereals, three or four legumes and a Nebraska. Yeah, that that's good. So you're you're utilizing the as much of the diversity in those in those four families as you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now on my place personally, I'm fixing to take a big kick back where I've been utilizing all that diversity, but I've got I've got a goal that I want I want to go to no-till organic on sweet corn. Mm -hmm. And I cannot crimp terminate that mix. Uh, there's certain certain things in there I can. Uh, also, you know, corn that I've got at B8, right? Sweet corn at B8 that was planted into 10, 12,000 pounds of biomass. I've got bare ground. Uh, I've, I've got I've got to get the I've got to get the ground covered. Uh, so my whole place next year is pretty much going to go uh, to cereal rye with balanza clover. And I will put flax, our flax will winter kill, and uh, daikon radish, and uh, buckwheat. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm going to be at a pretty heavy rate. I'm going to plant 70 to 80 pounds of cereal rye because I want, it's, uh, you know, next year's the year. Next you year's the year the I'm going to do it. Yeah, you need the armor to hang around yeah. and keep giving you that weed suppression. Yeah. Right. You know, because I, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm running adaptive management plots on my place and do, and I've done some termination timings this year. And uh, I'm wanting to study looking at what effects it has on the biology. I knew what effects it was going to have on the mess of weeds I've got on my early burn down stuff. Yeah. And I wanted to see what the biology, and it's just what we expected, the better the covers. And then I was wanting to see how much difference between a mechanical a crimp termination had on the biology versus a chemical termination on big covers. Yeah, you see, I think that's important because, 
you know, most folks know that we've gone all the way to total elimination. I don't know as though that's necessary. I mean, I think we can still build soil health with some chemistry. We just, and, and I'll tell you, you mentioned it earlier. I think we're the, the salt. You've got to figure out how to eliminate salt. And, and I'm telling you, Adam, when we, when we eliminated the, you know, and I've, I've been, I've been doing, I've been saying this wrong. I've been calling them synthetic inputs. Well, potash is not synthetic. So I don't know what I'm going to call them now because uh, Lance Gunderson brought that to my attention that that Rick, you're not correct on that. Those are, that's not synthetic. Well, he's right. So anyway, anyway. But it's extremely but, laden with salt. Yeah, heavy salt, heavy salt. But when when we take when we've taken that salt out of the equation, the balance it just it just it just happens. It just starts your your fungi to bacteria, your predator to prey, your gram positive, gram negative. All these things start to just fall into place. Yeah, and that, let me go back to the one question we had on on somebody just getting started. Yeah. And, you know, I said, don't look at it from a, a re reduction standpoint. One of the other things that you need to do is you need to get you a baseline with with your uh, biological analytic testing. And I recommend, uh, you know, having Haney tests done. I also recommend PLFAs because if you're somebody who wants to start looking at reductions, I don't recommend doing it until you start seeing your fungal components of your soil start increasing. Once you start seeing them, those fungal components start rising, then yep. then you then you got the system cranking and you yep. can start then you can really start my opinion or what I've seen with my anecdotal eyes when when that fungal you know that's when the magic started happening in our fields locally. Rick is when we started seeing that fungal ratio start increasing. Yep. That's when we started seeing. We, you can't see the organic nutrient cycle happening, but you can see the results of it in that corn late third quarter into the fourth quarter when yep. it's when it when it looks blue and and it's late in August and we're you know we got grain hang, we got grain at 18, 19 percent and we've got a green plant or we're cutting 17 percent corn and the stalks are good for silage. That to me is the results of tapping in to that organic cycle. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. And 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 what Adam's referring to here is uh, Dr. Rick Haney when he was working with USDA at at ARS, he developed a test called the Haney test, still used today. Um, this is this is how we track. We don't do conventional soil testing anymore. We track with the with the Haney. And you're exactly right. Adam, when we started this journey and we got our, I couldn't wait to get our first handy test back. I just couldn't wait because I figured we were kind of doing some things right. Hell, the, the, the scale, I mean, we were like that. It was all bio, it was all bacterial all the way. And then you start taking the stuff away. And now we're, I'd say we're about a 60, 40, we're 60% fungal, 40%. I don't want to go much more than that. Um, but everything else comes with that you know take those neonics off of your seed treatments well take seed treatments out totally take all that out take everything away and you start to build your beneficials back like you were talking about we've got a uh, a mix that i call pollinator palooza it's like 16 species that that bloom and that's what we we plant like 40 acres of it 
And that's how we get some of our beneficials to have a little habitat to, to live in. So all these things matter. It, it, it's not it's not any one thing. We it's it's a lot of little things. Just keep keep stacking them up. And, and Mr. Rick, I mean you're you've been as successful as anybody this in the country. And I think one thing we need to stress to folks is, man, this didn't happen overnight. Mm-mm. You know, this didn't happen overnight. And you and I really think we're always just going to be at the tip of the iceberg yeah. in soil health. You yeah. know, I, you know, soil health is not something that's taught. It's not something you learn. It, it's it's something you experience, and it kind of gets where it consumes you. And yeah. uh, you know, you're just uh, you'll you'll lose a lot of sleep, not as much over the failures, just trying to figure out, you know, what that popular. I mean. You know, I've got a wife and two sons and me in the house and it gets crazy. I can't keep up with it. You know, <laughs> in a in a handful of this soil, we got a billion critters. There's no way I can keep up with everything no. we're trying to do. No. But I think we just got to understand what they want in life. And, and keep in mind, they are a living, non-subsidized ecosystem down there. You know, they're, they're probably not on Zoom calls, but they have processes going on. You know they're not as complicated. They they just want to they just want to drink, eat, work, and make more 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 babies. You know that's all that they really want to do. If we provide the habitat for them, you know there's going to be ups and downs in it. But but here's the deal: what we did do has no potential. What right. we can do has potential, right? And it has potential for everybody. I'm not saying everybody's goal needs to be no-till organic but but if but if but if the vast majority of the landscape across the u.s where corn and soybeans were grew and i'm a two coffee counties horn just a little bit if the vast majority of the corn belt looked like coffee county we wouldn't have gulf hypoxia problems that's right okay when nasa runs their or NOAA runs that model that was just eye-opening of the CO2 levels and and the uh, oxygen levels when the corn crop started growing in the Midwest. Yeah. If we if we had if we just had the landscape covered, that model would look different. Yeah. A lot of problems would be. And and here's I guess one main point. If it, it don't get me wrong, soil health is great. Okay. Farming in this way is great for the environment for for the community. If it wasn't good on our billfolds, if I if I was asking producers to not produce as much, yeah. to then it would then I'm not sure it would be as I would not be as passionate about it. But we can make more grain, better quality grain, be more resilient, and the main point and our billfolds can be fatter as compared to the other way, and it affects more than just our operation. It affects our creeks here locally, our municipal water supplies. Uh, you know, so it is a it, it's not just changing the farm, it can change the community. Yeah. And I yeah, just I like to see it more. You know, it's just like you said, I think we overcomplicate everything. It's real simple. First yeah. first thing we got to get the ground covered. Yeah. And start working from there. If I was a municipality, Adam, I'd be concerned about the quality of water that I'm supplying to my my the people there in the community yeah and we have to be cognizant of that and 
And you're right. I mean, uh, we don't have a, a flood problem. We have a water infiltration problem is what we have. Mm-hmm. And you get a two inch rain event and, and three fourths of it's hitting the ditch and going, going downstream. So, no, yeah. I mean, it's pretty neat anymore. You head south in this county, and there's three main creeks that you cross Bradley Creek, Beans Creek, and Betsy Willis, the big three bees. They used to be muddy and certainly in the wintertime. And it, people of the community take some pride that are producers now when they cross those bridges four or five times a day that they look off and see those creeks running clear. Yeah. That's because their hard work is they see what they've done. That's awesome. Well, hey, we got some questions here. Uh, Michael, Michael Erdman, uh, did you ever do tissue testing on any weeds to see what they are trying to pull up from the minerals? Weeds are trying to fix problems according to, to Nicole Masters. We have. Have you done that before, Adam? I, I have not pulled any tissue testing. I guess I'm just too simple minded of a person I've never seen me I've never seen a weed growing in the same place that I planted a uh, seed I always see them where I didn't have a seed whether or not that be on 30 inch spacing uh, 15 inch spacing or seven and a half inch spacings are common spacing most of the time the weeds are growing where a plant's not so I was looking at it there was a response where I had that corn growing had the same fertility that in the center of that row 15 inches away and that weed was in response to my imbalances and my fertility there. So yeah. I, I, I look at it from the standpoint, not what they're trying to take up. It's they're trying to take up everything. There, there's not anything that grows that just utilizes nitrogen or just uses, utilizes phosphorus. Yeah. They're, they're not growing to utilize nutrients. They're growing in a response that the soil in that, place sent them up because it was not at the equilibrium for the biology that it wanted right there whether or not that be high nitrates or high in something else just understand that that they're in response to an imbalance the imbalance don't try to put a number on it just understand the imbalance is not the equilibrium the soul wants yeah yeah that's a good way to put it that's good um, Ashley Farr is asking is, and I'm not, I'm not familiar with this product, is wood ash a lower salt substitute to potash? I, I can't answer that one. I can't, I know, I know we see a big difference where we went to, uh, uh potassium sulfate. Yeah, as compared to uh, potassium chloride, big time difference in the residue where we had KCL for a potash source right next to uh, uh, potassium sulfate at beans or corn at pollination side by side the covers where we had the sulfate product less salt you could take the residue and it just crumble in your hands. Yeah. Right next to it with a heavier salt load, it was still, it had not been consumed by near as much. Yeah. Uh, but looking at, but to answer your question on what the salt analysis is, I would assume that the ash would be less, but but I, I do not have no numbers on that. Yeah, I don't either. I can't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stick my neck out on that one. 
Michael Erdman, what ratio do you want to see the bacteria to fungi numbers on a PLFA test? I, I like mine right there getting about 50, 55 bacteria to 50, 45 uh, fungal. Uh, if I if I was more north, and as I increase in latitude, I would probably want my fungal a little bit higher. But here, where I've got a little bit longer growing climate, a little bit more solar radiation, uh, I kind of like it right there about that fifty fifty. We yeah. I'll put it this way: we can cycle a lot of we can tap into the organic cycle at a fifty fifty. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you want to, you know, I, I think it's it's always moderation, it's always balance. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with Adam, but it's okay to get a little bit off center, but you don't want to get too far the other way because then you'll have other other problems occurring. So uh, try to keep it as close to that 50-50, no matter what it is you're looking at. Um, well, go ahead. I'll just, you got to be real careful because we always want to push the envelope and make these systems as highest functioning as we can. There's a fine line, but that race car, when we really get that race car cranking, you're going to end up with bare soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and like I said earlier, once that soil's left naked, soil health is over until, or, the, what, or that resource is not going to function as designed biologically until we get it covered again. So, you know, there's a fine line, you know, the soil wants to be at a very low carbon nitrogen ratio underneath. That's the reason why we have weeds. That's the reason why we have all this stuff is because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to run a race car down there. And uh, so it's hard when you get it really functioning to keep it covered. And certainly in human nature, we always think if, if a little bit's good, then a lot more is better that it's a fine line. It's a fine line and, and, it, and it's going to change. It's very dynamic. You know, like I said, on my place next year, I'm going to run a real high carbon nitrogen ratio just because one, I want to try to try to reach the ultimate goal of being able to no-till organic sweet corn. And, uh, but, but I'm probably going to end up making an adjustment, probably going to see something that's going to bite me a little bit by having too high carbon nitrogen ratio. Mm, maybe, maybe, yeah. Well, you know, I've talked about this in the past. I, I think you're going to be okay with what you're, you're, you're talking about adding diversity to that. So you're trying to offset that already. Yeah. I think you'll be okay. I think you'll be all right. Um, Claudia Ordonio, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Claudia, Mother Nature will take care of everything if we take care of the soil for Mother Nature. You got it. That's right. You know, we've often talked about uh, human health and soil health. I don't think we can have human health until we have soil health first. So uh, it all starts there. That's what I think. Well, Adam, this has been this has been a blast. We could go on for another hour, but um, you know, everybody's time is valuable. I'd like for you to take us home here. Give us your closing thoughts. Any anything for the listeners out there to 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 go home to go home with? Uh, it, number one, embrace it. It's it's a journey and enjoy it. Uh, number two, you can't hardly listen to any kind of soil health talk that won't list four principles. 
and that's to minimize disturbance, keep the soil covered, keep a living root growing, and, and maximize diversity anywhere you can. It's going to be different for everybody. Uh, one thing that I would stress, don't look at adopting soil health systems. Look at adapting the principles to wherever you're sitting at and make them work. Uh, you know, I notice, see some names popping up here, people I'm real familiar with. Uh, Lauren Steinloggy has joined us, uh, you know, and Lauren's been down and seen some of the stuff we're doing. Uh, getting the same results, but but now if he adopted what Darty's doing down here, he wouldn't be near as successful. He had, he's adapting. Same way as if I adopted what he's doing, uh, you know, but it's, it, it's tough. Uh, it's a logistical nightmare. Uh, No-till farming is pretty simple. Uh, regenerative farming is not, but but where, where there's a lot of risk, or no, I'm not going to say a lot of risk, where there's a lot of, uh, when you put your blood, sweat, and tears into something, you got a lot more potential for a lot better reward. Yeah. And, and, and you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. You'll, you know, I always hear people say, you know, want to be stewards of the land. And, and I've said this in talks before, uh, you know, I work for the natural resource conservation service. I have no problem with conservation. Conservation is good. What I have a problem with is conserving a degraded resource. When no matter every piece of ground we've got has the potential to be rejuvenated. Just remember that it all has the potential. So I'm, I'm, I'm not settling for conservation when we have potential to do even better. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Adam, thank you. This has been a, a pleasure. Um, keep up the good work. The NRCS needs you. Um, we love what you're doing with Coffee County. I wish, you know, I hope Coffee County could be a, a model for other places across the country. So thank you so much. Don't, don't slow down. Don't give up. Don't, don't change anything. And that sweet corn no-till is going to work. We'll, we'll talk about it. Talk about it next spring. I'll br I'll bring you a mess. I'm I'm gonna ship the first mess to you. Okay. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you. Uh, have a great rest of your evening and have a great uh, great summer. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Y'all have a good evening. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye.